there are many things in the course of uh, one's life for which they have to decide whether or not uh, they want uh, insurance. Uh, just recently, we purchased plane tickets for me to go to our uh, annual denominations general assembly in Birmingham, Alabama, and uh, the question of trip insurance uh, surfaced. So you have to decide: is seventy additional dollars worth the risk of having to potentially cancel? Uh, your flight or American Airlines losing your luggage? Uh, do you pay the extra for that iPhone or laptop because of the chances the phone's going to be dropped in water or someone's going to uh, step on your computer? The offer of insurance for some things seems to me to be a bit surprising. Just a couple of weeks ago, I recently purchased uh, a shovel from a local hardware store and they asked if I wanted coverage for damage up to a year. And I thought to myself immediately, it's wood and metal. I mean, what can go wrong here? Should I be expecting this to malfunction in less than 12 months? Uh, there may be things you would simply choose not to have insurance for. It's, it's, not, it's not worth the cost. Uh, you're confident in the product. But as we continue this morning in God's Word, in 1 John, this letter from this elder apostle, there is certainly one thing that with absolute certainty, we know we need insurance for. We need protection. We need a safeguard. And that is insurance for sin. For when we fall. And this, in a wonderful way, the believer has uh, in Jesus Christ. So if you turn as we continue now, 1 John chapter 2. Uh, it's the first six verses. 1 John chapter 2. Let's give our attention to God's Word. John continues and he writes, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His word in Him truly, the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says He abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which He walked. Uh, these Six verses really capture the heart of, of the gospel and capture really the experience of the Christian life and Christian journey. For one, John writes about walking in obedience, keeping the commandments of God, walking in a way in which our Lord Jesus walked. He also, though, acknowledges the reality of sin, our stumbling along the path and the journey, something that the Christian is familiar with. It's a part of his experience that we will fall at times along the path of godliness. And then he speaks of, therefore, a need for this advocate, a helper to intercede, forgive us to help us up and help us along as we stumble and as we sin. As John enters this chapter, chapter 2, he's anticipating a thought a response that his hearers might have. Through chapter 1, if you recall, John has made it crystal clear 
that the Lord Jesus, whom He said is from the beginning, from eternity past, uh, communicated as the Word of life and the eternal life, came to give us life. And yet, though the believer has life in Christ, John has told them in, I think, poignant and moving ways in verses 6 through 10 of that first chapter that sin is inevitable in the Christian life. So if you turn back to chapter 1, verse 8, he says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, both in verse 8 and verse 10. As we've noted, the remnants of the old nature remain. I think about uh, the weeding uh, process. Those of you into gardening, you start pulling the weeds, and, and sometimes just the top breaks off, and you just don't want to do the work of digging out the roots. But you know that weed's going to come back, right? And sin is like an underground weed, complex weed system in our hearts. It's going to come back to the surface. We're not going to eradicate sin in our lives, that is. And, and John's words are convicting because they shed light on our weakness, our own limitations. We're going to sin. We're going to fall at various times and in varying degrees. So as he moves into chapter 2, John is anticipating his, his hearers entertaining a, a dangerous thought. Well, if sinning and falling is inevitable, he's, he's made that clear, why seek after a life of obedience? Why pursue a holy life? Is it required? Am I not saved by grace? If I can't live a sinless life, why bother? I'm going to fall. Uh, one person called this the no big deal syndrome. Sin's not a big deal. And John writes to correct this false thinking about how God's saving grace works in the life of a believer. That, that God does not save a person to sin, He saves a person from sin. And a central evidence that grace is working in the believer's life is how they're relating to the path of obedience, how they are relating to the commandments of God. So John says in verse 4, whoever says, I know him, but doesn't keep his commands is a liar. The truth is not in him. Last week I made mention that how we relate to sin and the sin condition matters tremendously as, as we navigate the Christian life. Well, here it's how we relate to the commandments of God that uh, is greatly significant. As you begin these opening verses of chapter 2, in verses 1 and 2, John presents us with this glorious news. If anyone does sin, if any in the church and among the people of God, he says, we have an advocate, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, He is the propitiation for our sins. This very good news is worth unpacking a bit. But before we do, listen to these words from the second century, the early church father, Tertullian. Tertullian said, Just as Christ was crucified between two thieves, so this doctrine of the gospel, this good news, is crucified between two opposite errors. Right? Two thieves, if you've ever had your car or your home uh, broken into, you know how chilling that can feel, how intrusive that is. 
Well, Tertullian is saying there's two thieves, two false ways of thinking that will seek to rob us of life in the gospel. Two ways that will disrupt us and push us off life in Jesus Christ. And we can call these license and legalism. I think John is addressing both of these in these six verses head on. License is the false thinking that since I'm not under the law, but under grace, we may sin all the more. Sin is simply not taken seriously. Sin is no longer convicting, perhaps, to us. John corrects that in verse 6. He says, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way Christ walked. Remember Jesus' words in the uh, upper room discourse, John 14. He said, whoever loves me will keep my commandments. So a license to sin, what that will do is rob a person of the true joy of an obedient life, a loving obedience after our Lord. The, the, the path of God's commandments are good. Godliness is good. It brings joy. So we need to look out for the, the thief of license. It's cheap grace. Then we have to look out for the thief of legalism. Very important here, legalism is not taking very seriously the commandments of God. That's a Christian who's serious about the commandments. Legalism is different. Legalism is a misuse of the commandments to twist and turn the commandments to do something they were not intended to do. To save from the power of sin. The law is good. The commandments are good. But they do not have the power to deliver us from that power. The power of sin. Uh, Paul wrote to Titus that God saved us not because of works done in righteousness, but by His grace. It's the power of God at work in us that delivers us from sin. Uh, John does not say if anyone does sin, just get, pick yourself up. Get back on track. No, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. So we need to look out for both of those thieves. The thief of license, the thief of, of legalism. Notice John describes the Christian life and experience as a walk. In verse 6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And we know Scripture often uses that metaphor of walking or running to capture and describe the Christian life. Paul writes in Ephesians 4, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. There is a, a path to walk. It is a journey. And, and while John writes in verse 1 that they may not sin, I'm writing so that you would not sin. John is a realist about sin. He's not only communicated in the previous chapter that, quote, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, but now in verse 1, he says, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. I think John does something very practical and helpful for us here in our life of faith. By saying, if anyone does sin, he's telling us that we are not just sinners and that we have a sin condition. That we're not just sinners in general. He's telling us that sin is specific. Sin is particular. If anyone does sin, that would be to, to acknowledge sin as being something. 
Sin is particular. So the Scripture doesn't just speak about sin. In many places, it names sin. So for example, in in Galatians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul writes this, Now, the works of the flesh, or the the, the sin condition, are, are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. In other words, we could go on. But he names sin. It is particular. And here, in 1 John, the Apostle's words about sin are unqualified as to who it is that may sin. Young, old, spiritually mature, new believers, lay people, elders, deacons, pastors, all are included. If anyone does sin, I think we can say the ground is level at the foot of the cross. No one has a privileged position. If anyone does sin, and his words are also unqualified as to the kind of sin it may be. Yes, some sins are more grievous than others, but here he doesn't mention big sins or small sins, uh, sins that God may forgive, sins that He may not forgive. There's no statement about the multitude of sins or the magnitude of, of sin. He simply says, if anyone does sin, any Christian, any sin. One person put it this way, our debt has been fully paid, but we are ever incurring fresh debt and we need fresh forgiveness. As we walk the walk of faith and we fall and we sin, we may feel guilt, shame, pain, wounds, but our God here is a God of remedies. The God of the great remedy for us. He doesn't just give us help. He is the helper who intercedes for us. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. Important words in this passage. Advocate. It means one who comes alongside to help in time of need. This is the same word, advocate here, that Jesus used in the upper room discourse in John 14-16 to when Jesus spoke about the coming Holy Spirit. He says, but the Helper, the Advocate, or the Paraclete, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, He'll teach you all things. Amazing. We really have two advocates then. One is the Holy Spirit indwelling in us. He is speaking on behalf of God to us, convicting us, teaching us, illuminating our minds. But we also have an advocate in heaven, Christ. He speaks to God on our behalf. As the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 7.25 says, Christ, our high priest and advocate, always lives to make intercession for us. An advocate is a legal, a forensic kind of language. It's, it's really language of the courtroom. I've only served one time on jury duty, 
But there's something about lawyers and judges and courtroom dramas that fascinate people. It's why so many books, stories, films have been made about them. This was before my time, but I've seen uh, reruns of the old Perry Mason show. I believe in all of the years he never lost right a case. Uh, our Lord Jesus is that way. He never loses a case. It is not as if the evil one isn't seeking to accuse you. Picture it. In a courtroom, there are at least four people. The judge, the prosecutor, defense attorney, and defendant. The Scripture tells us in Revelation 12 that Satan is the accuser of the church, the accuser of the brethren. It says, accusing them before the throne of God day and night. And he doesn't just want to accuse us. He doesn't just want to accuse us of our sin and guilt, but to convince us that because of our sin, we are hopeless and we are helpless. He is the father of lies, the great deceiver. But God is rich in mercy. Christ, our defense, he pleads our cause. Just as we sang this morning, Come, thou fount of every blessing, wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. And he not only intercedes and defends us as helper, advocate, John says he is the righteous one. He's the spotless Lamb of God whose blood cleanses from sin. He comes to bear our sin as a substitute. John layers on more. He calls Christ not only our advocate, our helper, but in verse 2, he says what? He is the propitiation for our sins. Unique word. That Christ is our propitiation means that He bore God's wrath for us, resulting in our God being favorably disposed to us. Turning the wrath of God to Christ in our place. And it's because of Christ's intercession for us we can with confidence hear those words, the the blessing of Aaron there in the book of Numbers. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you. John knows we are not without sin. He knows we will sin. But he wants us to grasp when we do sin, not to allow our lives to be measured by the magnitude of our sin, the number of our sins, but to measure our life in light of the magnitude of our Savior's grace as the propitiation for our sins, as the helper, advocate, mediator for us. The late Scottish uh, minister Robert Murray McShane said this, I feel when I have sinned an immediate reluctance to go to Christ. I'm ashamed to go. I feel as if it would be it would do no good to go. As if it were making Christ a minister of sin. To go straight from the swine trough to the best robe. And a thousand other excuses. But I am persuaded they are all lies direct from hell. We have these assuring words. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate. The propitiation for our sins. But then this statement. And not for ours only, but also for the sins 
of the whole world. His words raise the question, for whose sins did Christ die? Does the atonement of Christ cover the sins of every person in the world? No. For if His death atoned and cleansed every soul, every soul would enter through that narrow gate. Every soul would be counted as sheep within His fold. No. Christ's grace, His atoning blood, and work of redemption on the cross was much greater than making it a mere possibility for souls to be saved. He did not die on the cross to make it a possibility, but to secure, to accomplish the redemption of His called, His elect people. Those He called, He justified. Those He justified, He glorified. As Jesus said, the Good Shepherd lays down His life for the sheep. For the sheep. The sins of the whole world I think it's referring to people from all parts of the world. Jew, Gentile, slave, free, man, woman. J.C. Ryle, he writes this, I will give place to no one in maintaining that Jesus loves all mankind, came into the world for all, died for all, provided redemption sufficient for all, calls on all, invites all, commands all to repent and believe, and ought to be offered to all, freely, fully, unreservedly, directly, unconditionally, without money and without price. If I did not hold this, I dare not get into a pulpit, and I should not understand how to preach the gospel. But, while I hold all this, I maintain firmly that Jesus does special work for those who believe, which He does not do for others. He quickens them by His Spirit, calls them by His grace, washes them in His blood, justifies them, sanctifies them, keeps them, leads them, and continually intercedes for them that they may not fall. If I did not believe all this, I should be a very miserable, unhappy Christian. Notice the shift that John makes from verse 2 to 3 in our text. You have such comforting words in those opening two verses. We have an advocate, the propitiation for our sins. But John surprises us, I think, surprises me, uh, in teaching where our assurance in our walk of faith grows. How do we continue to grow in assurance? He says in verse 3, By this we know we've come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. Again, at the end of verse 5 and into 6, by this we may know we are in Him. Whoever says he abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. He's saying that talking the talk is not enough. Verse 4, I say, if I say I know Him, but don't keep His commands, I'm a liar. John's protecting believers from the wrong thinking that suggests because I have an advocate, I have grace, I can walk however I would like. The true believer, though he will sin and stumble, has been set upon the path of life in Christ and desires to live after Him. And as we live after Him on that path, our assurance of our own faith grows more and more. 
Throughout this letter, John, uh, we will see, provides kind of tests for the Christian. This is the I know so test, the assurance test. Assurance comes not only in hearing the Word of God, but responding in loving obedience to His Word. Trying to live the Christian faith by profession only with little desire for a godly life is like trying to drive a car with the brakes constantly on. Yes, the foundation for our assurance is Christ, our Advocate. But continued fuel for growth and assurance also comes in this loving obedience, desiring the things of God. Not long ago, uh, not long before R.C. Sproul uh, passed away into, into glory, he was asked the question, how can uh, professing believers have assurance? And he said, such a person needs to ask them themselves this, do you love the Lord Jesus perfectly? Of course, we should respond by saying no. Then they should ask, well, do you love the Lord Jesus as much as you can? Again, no. But then he said, ask yourself this, do you love the Lord Jesus at all? If you can say, yes, I do love the Lord Jesus, even if it's not great, or as much as you would like, if it's sincere, that should be assurance for you, some assurance for you. No lost person has any love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you love the Lord Jesus at all? My Jesus, I love Thee. I know Thou art mine. For Thee, all the follies of sin I resign. My gracious Redeemer, my Savior Thou art. If ever I love Thee, my Jesus, tis now. Let's pray together. O Lord, how we praise You that by Your grace and mercy You have provided an Advocate, Your Son, our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the propitiation for our sins, how you have turned the brightness of your face and countenance upon us as a result of what you have done on our behalf. Oh Lord, thank you for that sure foundation upon which we stand, your glorious work of redemption in us. And yet, Lord, we thank you for the pathway of holiness, your wonderful commandments, Oh Lord, may You grow our heart in desiring to live after You. Putting off the old self and putting on the new self made in the image of Christ's likeness. Oh Lord, we thank You and ask that You would continue to walk with us, being our God as individuals and, and as the body of Christ. Would You guide us in the ways everlasting upon, upon paths of, of righteousness and peace. And indeed, Lord, reminding us that if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. An advocate with You, the Lord Jesus. May we know His grace and His mercy new every morning. For this we pray in His name. Amen.